0: And thank you for listening
1: to the Brandon Peters show. Today he invites you to a conversation on the 1994 film The Crow. To join me for that, I'm excited to have return to the show, freelance writer whose work you've seen in such spaces as Esquire and In Style, and the creator and host of The Adult Spelling Bee, Danielle Sapulvarez. Hello. Hello, welcome back.
0: Thank you. Good I'm to be
1: here. Glad to have you return. I had one of my favorite conversations on working girl last time, so yes. I was like, "Oh, instantly on the on the welcome back. Actually, pretty much all my guests are welcome back. I haven't had a bad one yet." So,
2: <laughs> that's always good to know.
1: That's pretty good. Now, in case any of them are listening or like,
2: "Hey, I thought good. I was your favorite, Brandon."
1: Yeah, they all they all hear that, but, you know, some of them more than others, but we'll keep that to me. But yeah, so how mm-hmm. have you been?
2: I've been mm-hmm. good. I have been working a lot, but I've also managed to, I don't know, the, this year I've, I've found a better balance, I guess. I think last year was just survival mode, obviously. And this year with things opening back up and, and going back to work and the world becoming more accessible in, in ways, again, that it, it wasn't makes me feel a little bit more focused, a little bit more inspired, a little bit more motivated, I guess. It's nice to feel that way. Because last year, I think we were all just kind of like, I don't know when this ends. I don't know what's coming next for any of us. So it's as much as we are not, you know, out of the woods just yet. It does feel like we're attaining some sense of normalcy and with that has has come some of my creativity back so that is nice well,
1: that's good to hear that's really good to hear i'm trying to figure out how to mold mine into the new like it's like you can't be in your basement all the time dude now do <laughs> you have to do things and stuff outside and but so <laughs> we'll be morphing this show to somehow fit it but yeah i get you any interesting cool projects you're allowed to discuss at all or
2: Well, my book that came out 10 years ago is in some very early development stages. So I I can talk a little bit about that because it's so, so early that, I mean, it's it's sort of at the point where it's exciting because you're like, yay, like someone's interested in making this into something, you know, another medium of this original format. But also it's so early that there's no article and deadline announcing it just yet. Okay.
1: Gotcha. Well, still exciting. Still exciting.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully, and I know development for anything can take a long time. So here's hoping that, you know, an actor wants to attach to it that, mm-hmm. you know, really takes to the book or the pitch attached to the book. And is like, hey, I want to play like this character. So because those kind of things tend to uh, speed it along as far as I understand it, because this is all a little new for me, too. So, yeah. So here's hoping anyone who's uh who it's being sent to their manager slash agents and people uh i hope you see a character that you'd like to play so that we can do this
1: <laughs> gotcha it's kind of like a joke i I heard a long time ago about the movie phantasm 2 which uh replaced its lead it's this joke about these execs sitting there and some guys pitching the phantasm you know we gotta make this sequel to this obscure 70s movie and like oh but we gonna do this and it's like we have, we have commitment from James LaGrosse and we're like, oh, green light, green light. <laughs> it's
2: like, That's amazing.
1: Which like James LaGrosse, even in his prime, wasn't like, you know. Yeah. Like I, I always say that in his prime, he was the guy that they'd get Brad Pitt because they couldn't get James LaGrosse and then James LaGrosse was gotten because they couldn't get Brad Pitt for a while. They like <sighs> crossed <laughs> at some point. <laughs> Oh my god, that's so funny. But yeah, Phantasm too, which is still sweet, even though, you know, it's the one without the main guy reprising his own role, but...
2: Reprising his own role.
1: <laughs> it, it's still bombed, so hey, it matters. So, but
2: hey, sometimes we love the bombs in retrospect anyway.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, true, true, true. And you've been able to get out and get to those Mets games. I enjoy your coverage. I'm not even a Mets fan, but the excitement...
2: Yes. Uh, my friend Meg actually was just tweeting about the difference between Yankees fans and Mets fans. And then she was saying, by Danielle's metric, though, I'm not even a Mets fan. And uh, I was like, Meg, you're totally a Mets fan. I just have sickness. <laughs>
1: <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Oh, man. yeah. Oh, that's fine. I haven't seen the Mets. I saw the Mets play against the Reds back in like the 90s when I believe Sid Fernandez was yeah, pitching. yeah. And he hit he hit on my mom. He hit on your mom. Yeah, yeah.
2: That's got
1: me. Yeah, got an autograph baseball, but at the time I don't know where it's at. But like she would like he was. I was like, hey, and he was not paying attention, not paying. And my mom came and was like, sup? Yeah, because he was warming up, and then yeah.
2: Like hello, Brendan's mother. hello,
1: lady. Yeah.
2: That's funny. I um I went to a, a book signing for Keith Hernandez. Oh, okay. And, um, I brought my dad. It was like a Father's Day weekend thing, and because my dad's a you know huge Mets fan, huge Keith fan, mm-hmm. and I had I had met Keith briefly like a month before that, although I I didn't think he'd remember. And then as we were signing books, he was he was sort of looking at me, and I was like, "Hi," I'm like, "We met a month ago. You probably you know." Because uh, you meet so many people all the time, mm-hmm. and he was like, "Yeah, yeah," and I i don't know if he actually did remember it or was just being polite, but he—he he made some comment about like how nice I looked, or like something about like my outfit looking nice, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, signed our books, we took pictures, and we left. And, you know, I brought my dad back home, and and my mom was there, and she's just because like she's had a lifelong crush on on Keith, because you know she was you know used to go to Mets games with my dad when keith was like in his heyday and he was like hot keith hernandez right and um, my mom's like did you meet him did you talk to him you know and she's all excited and my dad who hadn't said anything like the whole ride back goes yeah i think he was hitting on your daughter (laughs) 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 And my mom goes oh my god did you give him your number and i'm like mom Uh, he's literally your age (laughs)
1: yeah oh i don't want to date a parent no
2: it was really funny but he I mean I he was very respectful and he was you know he was very nice actually you know all three times that I've met him now and the third time yeah. I met him he also didn't remember the first two but he was just as nice as he was the first two times I met him so Keith is a, a very stand-up human being and gives very nice compliments okay, that's
0: right, that's right. One man was chosen to protect the innocent and to make the wrong things right. It's not a good day to be a bad guy. The film the critics are calling dazzling and fiercely hypnotic. Bye-bye, Bertie. Brandon Lee is sensational. A triumph. Brandon Lee. I love you. The Crow. Rated R, now playing at theaters everywhere.
1: The Crow is directed by Alex Proyas, written by David J. Show and John Shirley, based on the comic series by James O'Barr, and it stars Brandon Lee, Michael Wincott, Ernie Hudson, Rochelle Davis, Bailing, David Patrick Kelly, Michael Massey, Joe Polito, and the great Tony Todd. Uh, it's about a man brutally murdered who comes back to life as an undead avenger of his and his fiance's murder. You just mentioned me before this. This is like top five for you. All oh, time
2: yeah. top so five.
1: Let me hear this.
2: I just you know what it's it's such a tight script mm-hmm. and it's so well executed. Like everything about it. Like I know I was telling you before that I just rewatched it again. You know I try I try to watch it a couple times a year in general, mm-hmm. but because you know I think about it so much, like you do with your favorite movies. Like you know certain scenes pop in your head, certain things of dialogue, and Brandon Lee is so perfectly cast as eric draven slash the crow Mm -hmm. and it's ah, it's it's just this like perfect revenge film where the first time you watch it you're not totally sure where it's going you're like you know he's like he's going after these people and he's going to kill all these people but you know spoiler alert uh in the end like you have these great fight scenes and you have these great shootouts but the fact that he kills michael winkock by literally just instilling him with the memory of all the trauma and all the pain of what he caused mm-hmm. is something that makes it a little bit different than your typical like movie based on a comic oh, yeah. book because you always get the the fight out to the death and you always get like you know the the sword fight or the gunfight or the you know good old fashioned like beating each other with your fists and so i really like that moment where he uses uh, the memory that actually Ernie Hudson had that yeah. he, he saw through Ernie that he kept and and then used it to to save his life. Well, to sort of, he was already dead, but you know what I mean? To, like, yeah. <laughs> to sort of save his life enough to like get back to the cemetery. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah.
1: it's like supernatural death wish, but instead of just like going and just kill, I mean, the, he kills the whole gang but like it's they're idiots or whatever mm-hmm. and he gets yeah. to the head of them and he's really like this is what you did like it yes. really feels like someone getting their justice their uh-huh. come up as their judgment their you know everything and feeling it which is more than just stabbing or shooting and like, yeah it's much yeah. deeper than that
2: It is it's yeah and it's so satisfying like you just said like if there's just something about that that you're like yes this is this is justice you just feel like in the end you're happy that you know they're clearly like reunited in mm-hmm. in death him and shelly there uh the girl the skate they're skateboarding little teen punk that they yeah. teen punk that they keep an eye on i feel sort of sad for her you know because mm-hmm. she she's like all alone in the world that's one of the things i love about the the cinematography in it is that it just it shows this very lonely city and yeah. it's very dark and very, you know, scary and unsafe city. And, you know, and she's just like wheeling around in it. And she had these two people who looked out for her and then they were both gone like in an instant. Mm-hmm. And her, you know, she has her her drug addict mother who, that was also kind of a, a wild scene. I still remember the first time seeing that when he holds her arm and I'm like, what is he doing? What is he doing? And like the, the drugs come back out of her yeah. arm. And I was like, this is so wild, this movie. And he, he kills Funboy. <laughs> right. But he saves Darla and is like, your daughter is out on the streets and she's looking for you. Mm-hmm. And it's wild that you know he's he's this superhero in a way and that you know he's he's writing wrongs and like killing the bad guys but he's also like s- somehow has like the mind control to like set this woman straight and be like right. what are you doing like take care of your daughter because i i was doing it but i'm not here anymore
1: yeah he can save um, as much as he can avenge as well yes. like it's
2: there's so many scenes that are just like perfect in but in like different ways mm-hmm. and I was trying to think before this you know what my favorite scene is which is really hard it's sort of it's sort of one that converges into a second one and it starts with when he goes to the pawn shop oh yeah and he's you know questioning that sleazy pawn guy and he's like really about to torch the place and the guy's like take whatever you want and he's like thank you <laughs> <laughs> because like, you know he's not interested in that but it's just he he just nailed this sort of those like moments of levity where someone's about to die and he's completely in control. And, Mm -hmm. but also just, I don't know, it was just a little bit irreverent about it. Like you're going to die. You contributed to the death of so many people or like, like all this stuff in your case was stolen from good people by criminals. And you encouraged that you supported that. And then when he leaves, and Ernie Hudson pulls up, and they sort of interact for the first time, and Ernie Hudson is like, he goes, "Move, and you're dead." And he goes, and I say, "I'm dead," and I move, and it's just like it's almost poetic. Yeah, uh, just the way that plays out because, like, almost immediately, like Ernie Hudson is like knows like not to shoot him for some reason, you know, and like doesn't, right. and they have that whole conversation. And he's like, sit over there, and you know, and he he does, but then he, you know, completely disappears. But it's so I don't know. Like I love that introduction of him. Mm-hmm. It's it's like you know they always say with um, Gordon and Batman, right? And they become allies. Like it, it has like that feel of yeah. they do this little dance with each other, and then they realize that they can work together. And yeah, I think that's that's my favorite. And then my. Probably my second favorite is when he shows up to that meeting and jumps on the table oh, where they're yeah. all sitting on the table, and like that, like goes into complete chaos. Like that's a really fun scene.
1: Oh yeah, there's a scene like that that opens up the Punisher War Zone. If you've seen that, yes. our, yeah. So I wonder if they. Well, it was probably lifted from a comic, but still. <laughs> <laughs> that's- um. Yeah, that's really, and and Lee mentioned in that scene where he's talking about I'm dead and I move and whatever. Like you really see him turning a corner as like someone who could carry a movie and had some charisma that I I've seen some of it like uh, Showdown Little Tokyo I love it but he's not really jumping off. He's, yeah, he's okay as a goofy foil to Dolph Lundgren in that movie, but he really wasn't captivating. And this movie was possibly going to be straight to video when they when he was alive shooting it. And then they started, and they're like, "I think he can care. I think they can do this theatrical." So it switched gears, got a little more money, and then he died. And then Paramount all of a sudden said, "Yeah, we're not going to do this anymore." And then Miramax came in and saved it uh, to get finished. But they were yeah, it wasn't going to be straight to video based on what he had done before. And but he really comes to life in this movie about a dead guy. So it's kind of that
2: is it's it's really just. And some of the scenes, because, you know, rewatching it now, because I've been looking at it through sort of like a different lens, I guess, as a as an older person versus, you know, the first few times I watched it so many years ago. Because, yeah, like it came out in 1994. Mm-hmm. So I was God, I guess I was like 13 when it came out, 13 turning forward, something around there. So to me, it was just at the, at that age, it's more just like, oh, it's an action movie, you know, mm-hmm. and where like the good guy wins kind of kind of thing, just like a very basic understanding of what's going on in the movie. Yeah, And then, you know, as you get older and and view it as someone who's worked their way through the world a little bit <laughs> and, you know, the uh, the assault part like hits a little different because it's. I mean, it's it's graphic and yet not like uh, compared to to certain things that you've seen. Like, you know, because they don't show her. Right. They just like sort of like you understand what's going on. Yeah. um, But you know, they they don't show her, which I think was actually a very good choice if you're going to go that route. But the scenes where he's remembering what happened before he died. Like as he, as he's Mm -hmm. come back to life and he's in the old apartment and all the memories come rushing back and he's remembering, he like couldn't save his girlfriend. Couldn't, you know, couldn't save either of them. And that these men like really destroyed her as they killed her. And he's like feeling every bit of like that pain that she felt too. And like that resonates like so much more now to me than, than it did then it makes me think about how they've been trying to like make another crow movie for a really long time. And it keeps getting held up. Like they've had different people attached, different directors attached. They've had a script and the script got thrown out now this new script. And I think the latest I had heard was like, I think not since like something like 2018 was like the last I heard that something Mm -hmm. was happening and then that stalled out too. So I don't even know if it's even happening, but I was like, if they're going to do it again, because I, I I genuinely I mean I would see it for sure. Because right. I, I love, you know, the mythology, the whole, you know, storyline of the crow, but the nineteen ninety-four one is so perfect to me, I would actually consider watching one where she actually comes back to life instead.
1: Yeah. yeah <laughs> I know? mean it feels like I mean he got shot and killed, but like yeah. the worst happened to her. <laughs> like Yeah. Yeah. And
2: and I mean, I feel like it could be Uh, Look, look at how um, Jennifer's body has like new respect and like new light. And that was a movie about revenge. And that was a movie. I mean, it's honestly slightly different because Megan Fox came back to life and was not a good demon. (laughs) She was was also (laughs) killing her best friend's boyfriend and trying to kill her best friend. But Amanda Seyfried, when she becomes demonic at the end, like her first order of business is to go kill the guys who, the band guys who started this all. And like, Mm -hmm. there's just like a very interesting revenge aspect that very often gets handed off to male characters, which I have no problem with, but also like it could be an interesting flip to it. And I'm also probably biased because I I worked on the show Dietland, which I feel like never quite got its due, Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: it didn't get picked up for a season two. But with the way things happen in the news and the way people talk on social media, it's wild to me that it didn't get a season two because it was a little bit of of wish fulfillment in it because in Dietland, there is a vigilante group of women that call themselves Jennifer and they kill bad men. Oh, okay. (laughs) And it started because, like the woman who, who, you know, created the group of Jennifer, she was serving in the military and came home because her 13-year-old daughter had been like assaulted by a group of men, and they weren't punished. Like, I guess no one was found guilty because of you know whatever. And her daughter threw herself in front of a bus or threw herself in front of a tram. I'm trying to remember. Died by suicide, and her mother was you know so distraught and so angry. And she had all this military training and she had all these friends in the military mm-hmm. that like her, her next order of business was like, we're, we're going to take justice into our own hands. And like, if these men won't be punished by the law, like we're going to punish them. Mm-hmm. And so in the news, like little, like every week there's like, this person got killed. This person got killed. This person has gone missing. Cause you know, they would kidnap them and then kill them or like drop them off. Like they, the God dropped them. I think. Some of the bodies they dropped off of, like, an overpass in a highway. Oh, okay. Dropped the bodies, like... But they didn't... I don't think they killed the the men responsible for her daughter first, so it wouldn't be obvious. Like, they they killed other men, too. So it was, like, men in politics, soccer player. Like, uh, there was soccer players who had been accused of raping a girl, mm-hmm. and they had gotten off because of who they were, and they were famous and, you know, and rich and whatever. And so, like, these are the people that they targeted and it's very subversive the show and and the book that it's based on and but it's very it's very dark it's very interesting and it gets at like who gets to have revenge you know like who gets to have their their day who gets to have justice right and that's something i think i don't know i think it's like a theme that a lot of people like in movies yeah. and tv shows but it is interesting to see like which ones people watch But uh, yeah, so I do. I think something could interesting could be done with Shelley's character if they were to redo the crow. But
1: what if they did um, a? a I just thought of this. Not just a crow, a crow crows as a couple, coming and being creepy together, teaming around. A group,
2: uh, a group of crows is called a murder, isn't it? A murder. Yes, the
1: crow murder. The crow murder.
2: That's
1: true.
2: Even if they they just went the regular like reboot route and mm-hmm. just did it like the 1994 film. I don't know if I would love it as much but I would definitely watch it and I'd be yeah. open to whoever. I'm I'm curious to see who they would cast.
1: Well, uh, do you, uh, I, I, list, I I I looked up every single person who's been attached to play this since 2009. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Bradley Cooper. That was one of the high profile ones. Mm, uh, that's that that was seen, that was like, he was attached to it for like a year or two.
2: I mean, I love him, but I don't see him.
1: As uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of these, I don't know. Uh, Mark Wahlberg, mm. Ch- Channing Tatum, Ryan Gosling, James McAvoy, Tom Hiddleston, Alexander Skarsgard, Luke Evans, Sam Whitwer, Nicholas Holt, Jack O'Connell. And the most recent one was Jason Momoa, who left it in 2018.
2: Hmm. I like Jason Momoa. He's too. He's too big, though. Like he looks they, like they so look like they're going for guy. big guys. Like
1: yeah. if, for a bit of it, except for like McAvoy and yeah. Hiddleston could be both. Yeah. I'm just maybe maybe someone less like lesser high. Pro- I know they want the name with it, yeah. but maybe somebody I can
2: see Alexander Skarsgård because he has like the stoic mm-hmm. thing. For him. Yeah. Cause like it's more to me, I mean, like they that that's a list of like very good looking guys, but right. and and Brandon Lee was also very good looking. But to me, it's more about like projecting that like calm, stoic kind of, I'm going to kill you now. <laughs> like yes. you know, and I don't know, like Bradley Cooper has like a warmth to him in like the stuff that he plays. I just don't see it. Mm-hmm. Um but also, yeah, he'd be he'd be too old now too. I think
1: some of them were at times where they just wanted to latch to a franchise. Oh yeah, and, and that, that was I, the first thing I offered. Um, uh, there, we got to remember though, like uh, Vincent Perez, uh, Eddie Furlong, um, Eric Mabius, and Mark DeCascos have all played the Crow as well because yeah, this is a a franchise that. I don't think maybe should have been franchise. I don't know. It wasn't that successful to be continued, but we got a theatrical sequel, which earned this, this movie made $93 million. It was a big, it was a surprise hit and a big hit. so they got Crow City of Angels and then got two straight to video movies and a TV show uh, out of it. So I've only seen the Crow City of Angels, but it was long ago. I haven't, I think I may have rented one of the straight-to-video ones, but I, can't, I couldn't tell you a thing about it.
2: Yeah, I definitely didn't see the straight-to-video ones.
1: Which had, like, Kirsten Dunstan one, yes, uh, uh, yeah, Jody Lynn O'Keefe, David yeah. Boreanaz. Like, there's some named people in these.
2: Yeah, I didn't get to see that. The City of Angels, I don't think I ever finished watching it, but mm. I, I should go back and try again.
1: So on HBO Max.
2: Uh, no, all right. I'll which I will check. I
1: swear yeah. to my listeners, I I'm not sponsored by HBO Max as there's much lot, as I talk a about.
2: Lot good, a lot of good stuff on HBO. It's Max It's my
1: favorite yeah. streaming service. So yeah, so there. I mean, yeah, and I would think an important thing if when redoing the crow, this is such a era, and I'll spin it back to the movie itself. It's such an era specific. Like this is a grunge, goth staple of yes. the '90s. Like oh, if yeah. you want to put like then like make a collage scrapbook of the nineties, the crow goes somewhere in there for oh, sure. Yeah. And Absolutely. I would try to make it of the, like, I think that the idea would be to try to make this dark brooding thing, but mm-hmm. if that's not, you need to make it fit of the time. You need to find yeah. a music fad of the time to build on and go with that. And I, cause I think that's just as important to the crow. It it, it lends it its attitude. It lends it its, look it's feel and i think you should do that if you're remaking the crow the city of right. angels was allowed to do that because it's of the same same era but right. it's very informed by it and it's got such a, like uh alex proyas who this is his first feature film he'd done some music videos and stuff mm-hmm. he had this he didn't pan out really as a director after him mean, he's still working but but yeah. this and Dark City, which she did after this, which I'm also a really big fan of, just aesthetically pleasing, just costuming, lighting city yeah. masterpieces. Like, mm-hmm. they are outstanding. Like, these are cities, yeah. like, I don't want to live in this city, but I want to, like, do a safe visit and kind of, like, get the feel.
2: Yes. It's, yes, exactly. Like, definitely don't want to live there. But I feel like I read somewhere, too, that after what happened on the set of The Crow with the mishandling of the props Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and Brandon obviously getting killed, that it just, it messed with him mentally for Mm -hmm. a long time Mm -hmm. in terms of working, which, I mean, I imagine it would, but... As someone who works on a set now, like, so many years later, mm-hmm. it's it's so – it's just nuts to me that the safety protocols that I'm used to weren't even the norm then. That was the 90s. Like, how are you not being as safe as possible?
1: It was a rushed shoot and a lot of not communication. I, a, I read, a, like, a detailed rundown of the events. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, well, this guy switched this, and then this wouldn't go with this. But they didn't have time to go order this, and this, and the, and somehow there was a dummy bullet or something that should have been switched out was switched out, got switched out, got put in, got locked in a chamber while other ones were not. Yeah. And poor Michael Massey, who is passed away like five years ago, but he's the guy who pulled the trigger. Yeah. On it, and it haunted him forever. Like yeah. he was still giving interviews talking about it, as mm-hmm. as far as I can see, in that that's haunting. And it was during this; it was the he shot the shot was during the scene where they were filming the flashback of the awful stuff happening. It's just a nightmare mm-hmm. yeah. to think of. Because mm-hmm. he gets just, shot at a lot in this movie, and I'm like.
2: Yeah, he does. And you're, and you're
1: like, which one, you have this sick game in your head of like, was this the one that did it? Was this the
2: one that I, did it? Oh my it? God, it's terrible. I know that. I think I try not to think about that when I watch it and I was like, it was, and that, cause like, you know, in the back of your head, you're like, well, I read, I, cause we've all read the thing about, you know, what mm-hmm. happened. And you're like, this is a scene where it happened. Oh my God. Is this, I don't wanna, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. Like it's awful.
1: Do you um, remember where you were when you heard about it? I do. It's weird.
2: I do actually. Yes. I remember I w- actually was at school mm-hmm. and I think it like grossly like raised the mystique of the movie of like everybody wanting to see it. Yeah. Also like the way they reported things back then, like mm-hmm. to my memory was, you know, which is awful because we're seeing that a lot now too in terms of, cause nineties was like big for pop stars. And now we're seeing like them speak out about how they were covered in the news. But in, in terms of like mm-hmm. entertainment reporting, I, re- I feel like I remember like headlines being like, Oh, it's a conspiracy. Like his dad died on a set. Now he died on a set. And it was just like, kind of like spiraling out of control saying like someone was like out to get him.
1: Yeah. Um, there was a, there was a very big conspiracy. Like I dug into that hole for a bit uh, mm-hmm. when I was, cause I was early internet days. And-
2: yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause it, I mean, cause it feels that way. Like, and then it's, it's, I, you know, it's, gross and disappointing that it could be chalked up to just negligence you know because not not that either way is good because we lost like a young man who you know had his whole life in front of him mm-hmm. which is just tragic and aside you know aside from being talented like he was he was just a young man who should have been able to live his life like talent aside the fact that it was just Plain old shitty negligence that, you know, like you were saying, bad communication, just rushing and trying to save money and, and someone not doing their job as well as they should be doing their job and not talking to someone else about the job that they did. You know, it's, it's like a terrible, just a terrible, terrible chain of events that led to it right. that could have been avoided.
1: Yeah. And it's, this isn't like this is, yeah, this is idiot community. this isn't john Borman having linda blair at the edge of a building during exorcist too dangerous like where it's like <laughs> she's not even on a harness like wh- like this is just f- smaller production problems mm-hmm. because of mm-hmm. how rushed how little money they give yeah. and yeah. this helped yeah. change that but i'm still sure there's other issues nowadays that will come later on and such and just yeah wow. and you know it's crazy so like i was on my way back home from spring break with my parents and it was a breaking news update on the radio and i was like whoa what wow. and and then i was obsessed with they're gonna finish it without like what are what? they gonna do and then you know it's crazy though one year later one year later coming back on that same florida trip we'd go on on spring break when i was a kid Kurt Cobain was dead.
2: Oh my God! They have oh it
1: was like exactly one. Well, it's not to the day, but of the week. Yeah,
2: that week. Yeah. Oh my and, God.
1: and that was the same trip and breaking news. And in, like ninety five, I'm like nobody die during yeah. the radio in my parents' car on the way home. Like seriously. So yeah, just insane. I'm just like a closing the door. But yeah, the the dying, um, having to like and the crazy. The thing with his father. For the listeners who may not know, his father was Bruce Lee, mm-hmm. and he he died at a girlfriend's house of a medicine that was given to him incorrectly. He was not. So, where they get confused with that a lot of the times, and this is so creepy, so like you feel like somebody wrote the book of the world uh, or something, and we're just living it out, but his, his father did a movie called Game of Death. He was in the middle of that when he died. They finished that without him with a double. And in Game of Death, he plays an actor who fakes his death by getting shot by what was supposed to be a blank on set of a movie and goes, you know, fakes his death to find out who's doing this and get revenge on them. Mm -hmm. Oddly, a wicked premonition of his own son's
2: demise.
1: Just, wow. Wow
2: like it's it's the exact kind of fodder that conspiracy theorists love
1: <laughs> if you tell yeah if you tell somebody that like they'd be like you're full of shit like in 1983 like yeah it's gonna you know yeah that, that's yeah only in a movie no real life's crazy too but yeah, yeah just it's it's so crazy and then they filmed and do you know who his stand his stand-in was that they would um have his that he would stand in for brandon lee no, winds up being he didn't have he didn't go by this name then, but it's Chad Stilesky who directed John Wick one through four. Oh,
2: yes, yes, I've met Chad. I yeah. worked on Wick. Yeah. Oh my God, I didn't know that was him. Wow.
1: Yeah, he he stood in, and he was he went by Chad Stove something. It was a different last name. Okay. But yeah, he. Okay. Okay. wound up being the guy who filled in for and they would digitally they did it was early so this is a not only that it's a huge mo- moment for digital effects yeah. because we oh, had yeah. jurassic park was like the year before and everybody was like what and this yeah. is where they got used cosmetically and they would replace the face in a couple of moments and that still that technology still gets used today like they used it on like just to well, this this movie's now almost ten years old. But Skyfall, when Daniel Craig's riding the motorcycle all across the train, it's a stunt mm-hmm. man. But they put Daniel Craig's face, and yeah. you, can, you can if you're looking, you can tell. But that they still use that, and now they're creating people from the dead. Uh, yeah.
2: They um, uh, what's it called when they did that Game of Thrones scene where they're yelling shame and ringing the bell? Oh yeah,
1: and,
2: and Lena Headey is walking. They had the someone do it naked. Mm-hmm. and then they put her face oh, okay. on the person. Um, and so they both like, so I think from what I read, I'm trying to remember, I read, I read whole like rundown of how it worked. And so the, the body double walked naked and they shot it with them. And then Lena did it clothed, but I think in like a, like some kind of a body suit or something. I'm trying to okay. remember what she had to wear for it, or maybe like a, like something that was just like, green? A, like a green screen okay. suit, like something like, I'm trying to remember exactly, but like she had to walk it, but they had to like walk it like exactly the same way. So like, I guess could, they could like match it up as well as possible. But yeah, but it's, it's her face on somebody else's body.
1: <laughs> okay. I actually didn't know that about that one. I yeah. I didn't, I didn't do a lot of like behind the scenes research. I just kind of watched Game of Thrones and went with it as it went along, but that's really cool. I mean, I would have thought it would have been Lena Headey because she's gotten naked in a lot of movies before.
2: Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, I actually thought about that. I don't know if she ever said why that scene or whatever, but also there it now seems to be coming out that a lot of the actors on Game of Thrones were not like super thrilled about all the nudity and Mm. just did it like Amelia Clark, I think she was like super young and inexperienced when she first got the part. And just like said yes to anything, and I feel like she sort of hinted in interviews lately that like certain scenes, she's like, I don't know that I really needed to not be dressed for that. <laughs> like,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. She's like, well, if this is what I gotta do. That yeah. that probably that kind of pressure. And
2: yeah, I mean, I, like, I've read all the time about how uh, Kate Winslet like fully believed in doing the nude scene in Titanic. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the problem was like after that, her agent kept getting scripts where the character took their clothes off. Cause they were like, okay, so she, she'll do it. Like, she's one of those people who would do it. So now let, we'll send her all the, all the shows and all the movies where, you know, the actor gets naked. And, um, I think she's like commented on, on how that like became a thing for her that they just expected her to do. Cause she did it once.
1: Gosh, mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when those nudesies have, I mean, it becomes a big, big thing.
2: Yeah. Pre-intimacy coordinators, which is now like a big job on set, like mm-hmm. HBO won't shoot any shows without them. Um, and I think Showtime and a lot of the other cable shows, because I mean, I, I know they work on network shows too, but network shows aren't doing as as racy of scenes.
1: SNL did a sketch with an intimacy coordinator, I think. Didn't yes, they? I think did?
2: they did. I think Um and uh, there was, I worked with one for an HBO show and she was a complete sweetheart and so nice. And I actually, I didn't have to work with her in terms of a scene, I should say. She was just on set and we, we got to know each other and she was really cool. But yeah, it's, it's become a really big thing. And the thing is, I'm lucky that I never felt like I needed one for any of the stuff that I did, but I can see where, like, what we were talking about before with like actors being like, I guess I have to do this, like, I guess mm-hmm. I should just do this, with them feeling like they understand what's going on, they read the script, they know, but then they get to set and sort of have not even necessarily second thoughts, but have a different idea of like what was supposed to play out versus what the director wants. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have an intimacy coordinator who can just be like, Well, like, what are you comfortable with? Like, what are you? like, what would you do in this scenario? And like how, and then like, you know, work with the director to be like, okay, so how do we do something that keeps everyone comfortable, looks good on film and satisfies everyone involved? Like, this is what the writer wanted. This is how the director wanted to shoot it. This is what the actor's comfortable doing. Like, how does that all coalesce us into the shot? Right. You know, like I said, I haven't really had to do anything like, super extensive it's more just been like shots of parts of my body and for the most part most of the time it was on a cable and i'm sorry not a, not a cable show a network show so there's only so much they can right be yeah anyway. but also like i think it was it was a little bit liberating as someone who grew up as like such a goody two-shoes and like you yeah. have to go like show my ass on television all <laughs> over the place the world has seen it the world has seen it, and I get residual checks for it all the time.
1: <laughs> Next stop, streaking at the Mets game on the field.
2: Oh, I'd get banned for life.
1: <laughs> but, uh, back to the movie. Uh, yeah. Where did we go? Oh, the digital stuff. That's where we came the digital from. Digital stuff. That. Yeah, that's where yeah. um, So uh, the the movie, like I guess, Proyas wanted to do it in black and white, but of course, got rejected. And it kind of feels fitting, too, because the comic book apparently is largely, and to no surprise, influenced by Joy Division and The Cure, which I never uh, read the Crow comic book, but seeing it come to life here, yeah, pretty, pretty sure that's a yeah. thing.
2: Did you read comics at all in the 90s? I didn't it? really. Okay. Um, yeah, I wasn't really a comic book person. My brother read some comics. I would say, like honestly, the only comics I probably read were mm-hmm. Archie Comics. Gotcha. Um, I, I loved all of them. That's when they made Riverdale, Riverdale right? Mm-hmm. Riverdale is like the dark Archie teen drama, like Twin so Peaks,
1: about. Archie. Yeah,
2: because I I loved Betty and Veronica, and mm-hmm. it's funny because like they've made Jughead like hot on the TV show, but yeah. in the comics he's like such a dope. Well,
1: I believe and, I think oh is it? I think it was uh, she. She still writes a little bit now. We used to be a uh, more but Britt Hayes. She called the show "Hot Archie That Fucks."
2: Yes, that's, right. like, that's,
1: that's what she called Red Verdale.
2: <laughs> that is a Riddell. But yeah, I think those were the only comics I really read. Okay. And, w- you know, which is a shame because I think I, and it wasn't even that my parents sort of instilled this in me. It was just sort of the sense that like comics were a boy thing. And so I just, I never really got into it. You know, actually though, in college, I had a very interesting class called texts and contexts. And uh, during one part of the semester, We actually did read some comic books. Although, actually, I think there were more graphic novels. Like, there were some comic books and some more graphic novels. And I found them very interesting. And I always meant to, like, read more. And I just just never did. But someone was saying to me recently, because I think I was talking about horror or something, and they were like, there's a lot of good horror comics if you want to get into it. Like, you know, just dig deep on uh, Twitter or the internet and you can get some really good suggestions of stuff. So at some point I think I will probably become a comic person, but you for most of my life, I, I really haven't been, I guess that's why also I don't get too wrapped up in, in the, uh, the fights people have about Marvel and DC and the movies versus comics and stuff. And you
1: can't tell, you can't say any of them aren't your thing or bad. They're all perfect. <laughs> all the Marvel movies are perfect. They're are bad. So the most um, uh, cinema. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I was going to say because uh, my heyday of comic book reading was the 90s. And I didn't read like The Crow, or uh, there was a big push and a change in the type of heroes that came in the 90s. Like this is when The Punisher was really popular. You yes. had Ghost Rider, The Max, Deadpool, Spawn, Grifter, Lobo. those Rob Liefeld type guys where they would like be really jerky dudes cuss and they would kill the villains and stuff and it ended up like it like leaked into batman which i was reading so in the 90s they they broke bruce wayne's back in nightfall which you might remember being portrayed in dark Knight rises but he had a guy named asriel who was he was working with he was this like guy named jean paul valley and he was blonde and he was younger and he was an asshole. And he got to take up the the moniker of Batman when Bruce mm-hmm. Wayne's back was broken. And it was the Batman people being like, all right, assholes, you, you saying you want to kill her, Batman? Here you go. And it was terrible. And Batman had this like, like mechanical suit thing. And he told Robin like basically fuck off. And he went like crazy. And so meanwhile, it took like two years, but then they had Night's End where Bruce Wayne came back. Defeated Azrael because Azrael is the guy who defeated Bane, and then right. Bruce Wayne comes back, defeats Azrael, becomes. Then Bruce Wayne's like, "I need time off," and Dick Grayson became Batman for a bit there. But this guy like turned me off from reading Batman. Like I was wow, just not boy. in this type of guy. But it was it was the writers going, "You'll see what happens," and yeah, I got turned off. I didn't I didn't right. want Batman to be that way, but there was a desire right. to make Batman more edgy. Of course, know? and they've done that. They've done that since then. I don't I don't keep up with. My comics are like in it, gone, in it, gone. Like I'll find something, pick it up, read it, and but I'm not like I not hardcore and I'm probably not reading anything that anybody finds cool anyway. But (laughs) but yeah, so this was a time like this there was like yeah, so we got these dark, dark heroes of the era with names like Eric Draven, like the most goth name
2: ever. I know. And also what you're saying about the Alex Proyas wanting it to be black and white. is funny mm-hmm. because even though it's not, the movie feels very black and white. Oh like yeah. It's, you can see so it easily going yeah. Like mm-hmm. the whole, the, the entire film, like there's, there's really hardly any color when you think about it. Like everything's like, everything happens at night for the most part. Mm-hmm. Like it's very dreary yeah. during the day. There's no sun. It's, although, you know, it spawns my, my favorite line, can't rain all the time. Right,
1: yeah. and um, No son to the end of the movie. Yes, no son to yeah. the end
2: of the movie. But it highlights everything. Like, the buildings look
1: Well, dark. he can control the city because he made a model city instead of shooting see So he's able, like you mentioned the cinematography, that's because yeah. he's able to just go through they even do a car chase with models which you can't really tell yeah Uh, and it makes it unique and just has its own orthodox way of moving the camera around which i love because it's really Mm -hmm. nifty
2: yes i love that like the cut that car scene the car where he uh sends what's his name to his death Mm -hmm. and uh, while the other one watches that scene and the the stone temple pilot song is playing Mm -hmm. and i think it's interstate love song it is
1: big empty We'll touch uh, on that in a sec. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's it's so perfect because, like you were saying before, like the music of the time, and where there the city is, and that it's raining all the time, and it's grunge, and it's it fits that whole aesthetic. And then a Stone Temple Pilot song comes on, and you're like, "Ah, this movie is perfect." <laughs> like,
1: yeah, yeah. Like the soundtrack is it's a staple. Like, and yeah. uh, it was. Uh, it had Stone Temple Pilots, The Cure, Nine Inch Nails, Rage Against the Machine, Violent mm-hmm. Films, Rollins Band, Helmet, Pantera, Jesus and the Mary Train, all on one album.
2: Yes. I really remember, actually, I bought the soundtrack.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I So, we'll talk about Stone Temple Pilots in the next one. But Big Empty was huge. Like, that song just hit me when it first yeah. came out because uh, I was like... Not that into Stone Temple Pilots, and then that song just hit me. I was like, "These guys rock!" Like, yeah, and this wasn't I, supposed to be the song. No, they they, it wasn't. they had to yank their old one from where they were called Mighty Joe Young, called "Only Dying," and they're like, "That's not appropriate." <laughs> so yeah, I got scrapped. And Big Empty, a song that the first single from Purple, and yeah. I was like, when I heard I heard it like because I used to have this little station that would play alt rock after ten p.m. Mm-hmm. And this came on there and I was like, well, this is Stone Temple Pilots. And mm-hmm. I was like, damn, this song's really good. And then they use it in the movie and it's just simple little card. Like, I'm like, all right, I wanted to like mean something, but,
2: <laughs> but yeah. I mean at the time too, like I think everyone in who in my age group who's like, you know, too cool for school was just like, Oh, they just stuck the Stone Temple Pilot song in there just to be because like they're cool at the moment. But yeah, I loved purple that was a great mm-hmm. album uh, at that time in the 90s like the main music we all listened to because we weren't quite yet at the the britney and christina boy band like right pop era it was like pearl jams 10 pearl jams versus uh corduroy vitalogy, right?
1: yeah yeah uh,
2: vitalogy see we're in the corner
1: of like grunge was about to start going away and becoming alternative nation which became yes. like which I, I talked about it with uh, uh, earlier this year on an episode, which was just like a vomit bucket of just like all these music styles that no, why would they go to, like why would swing music be followed with Limp Biscuit?
2: I just, what? It's I alternative. Know. I know. It was yeah. so weird. It was a weird time. And then I remember like, our friend, we had uh, one girl in my friend group who was like obsessed with Pearl Jam. And I always really liked Pearl Jam. Then I think they were, they were initially like my favorite partially just because, like, I think I knew so many of their songs. So it was, like, Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, Smashing Pumpkins. Mm-hmm. I mean, those were, like, the top three, I think, because they were on the radio all the time. Like, in, like, because the, uh, the radio station that everyone listened to around here at, like, 9 o'clock every night had a top 10, and they were all over it. But I'm trying to think. I mean, like, yes, Nine Inch Nails, like, we loved. And um, Nirvana, Oh God! The album names too. Like uh, what was the Smashing Pumpkins one? Melancholy and the Infinite, the, Infinite it, the double
1: album. It's like the best double album.
2: Yeah,
1: I know. There's the White Album, but the, the best double album of the '90s. <laughs> like that thing. I wore that thing out. That was the yeah. Smashing Pumpkins. Were my first concert. Really? I saw too. Yeah.
2: Oh God! Yeah, I love them. With um,
1: garbage, they open for them.
2: Garbage. So
1: technically, I guess you'd
2: say garbage,
1: but. I went for the Smashing Pumpkins, which I had to wait because the keyboardist OD'd and they kicked Jimmy Chamberlain out and my concert oh. got delayed for. Good Lord.
2: for okay. Us. Well, that's like, I feel like years later, friends of mine went to go see Stone Temple Pilots and it started really late. And essentially the story was that Scott Whalen had like,
1: I a story. backstage,
2: stage and then came out and, and performed. And it was a terrible show. Like he, he like couldn't enunciate any words, but it was literally because he'd been like semi dead, like 40 minutes earlier.
1: You're gonna hear a similar story when.
2: <laughs> oh no! When
0: we oh. go to
1: that,
2: but. Yes.
1: Yeah, awesome, awesome. Yeah, this, uh, yeah, this album was just, a, and I think I honestly, I also enjoy the Crow
2: City of Angels soundtrack. That one had. Oh, they do have a good soundtrack, actually. Even though I don't remember ever finishing the movie, I do remember a good soundtrack. It,
1: yeah, it had the the whole cover of Fleetwood Mac's uh, Gold Dust Woman, which was pretty rad. And uh, filter had a good one on there. It was it was a it was a cool it was a cool album. Um, it's not quite the the have the legacy of this one, but it's a nice mm-hmm. comp, compliment to it yeah. that came out a couple years later.
2: I've always said mm-hmm. if I become successful enough that I don't need to body double anymore, I want to get a tattoo, and that tattoo I want to get is like on my ankle that says it can't rain all the time with well, a there little.
1: You go that's awesome mm-hmm. excellent so,
2: so one day hopefully i will be able to get that tattoo
1: what else this is where we discussed anything we may have taken in recently movies books tv maybe something we wrote maybe something we produced maybe something we're working on so danielle what else
2: what else? Okay, so I actually watched a bunch of stuff in the past few days and I watched the new uh, Steven Soderbergh No Sudden Move, which I watched was that too. Yes, which was written by uh, the incredible Ed Solomon and I loved it. I thought it was like this perfect, like perfectly paced, very tense, what's gonna happen next, how many people are fucking how many people over, like who's going to come out on top? I don't understand what's like you have to take down the big four because they're the ones who are, mm-hmm. are capitalizing on all this senseless death in the first place. And I loved it. I thought it was really smart and really well done. And also, what a great cast!
1: Yeah, and I thought like, didn't it look like a lot of the shots could have been like covers of like old forties pulp novels too? Like certain yeah. like moments and stuff. I'm like, that looks mm-hmm. straight up like a cover. Yes. Like there yes. was one of like Amy Simons with a gun in her face,
2: like. Yes. Oh my God. I
1: started noticing it. I was like, wait, that's a cover. That's a cover. That's a cover. That's a cover. That's a cover.
2: cover." Yeah. And there was a lot of, I guess also like there's certain scenes that looked very like sepia toned Mm -hmm. that just sort of had that, that old school look to it. I mean, I love the cars. I love old cars in in period pieces. Um, But it was just, yeah, I just thought it was a, a great script. Well shot, like, you know, kept me, kept me hooked the whole way through.
1: From the guy who um, was supposed to retire like eight films ago. Yeah. Continues to wow.
2: <laughs> and I love, cause I feel like this is the thing that Soderbergh does in general, but I like, I think just because I've come from working on so many like, straight tv shows where everything is about coverage like Mm -hmm. when they're filming two people talking like you're seeing like they'd be seeing my face and your face and like a two shot of us talking from the side and then like over your shoulder to me like over my shoulder to you and like that's how conversations get covered and there's so many scenes in the movie where someone's walking and the camera's behind them and like there's like attention to it and they're and it's not that they're not talking because sometimes they are and but you don't need to see their face right to like, understand like what's happening in the scene and some and like i don't know sometimes i really like that style versus like covering something to death like well,
1: it's something a friend of mine and he's on the commentaries that come on here what's about that Yancy burns has always talked about we discuss like people need to like make conversations and films interesting. And they used to be like how you shot, everything used to almost be important and conversations used to look more interesting. And they've kind of gone by the wayside of just being like you, what the simple coverage ones that you said, and that's leaked into film a lot of the times. And that's why some people may not, well, we talked about Marvel, why they may not think the Marvel movies are as high art cinema because their conversation scenes are just kind of Captain America. They think costume filling out the frame is interesting enough and you got to shoot it good too.
2: And let's see, what else did I watch? I watched, uh, I finished watching Hacks on HBO. Oh, yes. Which I loved. Jean Smart should win so many awards this year. Oh my God, she is so perfect as this Deborah Vance character. Did you, wa- did you watch it? Yep,
1: that was one of my okay. what else like a couple weeks ago. So go, okay. yes, keep talking. Yeah. I'll talk about Hacks, yeah.
2: Oh, oh my God. The Well, the last episode made me cry. But I think they they totally nail the the Ava character of, like, someone who actually doesn't even seem to be that good at their job,
0: mm-hmm. but,
2: like, thinks that they're a lot better than they actually are. And, you know, Deborah Vance is, sort of serves as this, like, bringing her back down to earth. Like, I love that speech. I think it's in episode two where they're she leaves her in the desert and with the car. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I'm actually good at my job. And Deborah Vance is like, that's, like, the baseline. Like, yeah. That's you, you need to like be amazing at your job, but you need to like continue to do it like for years and it only gets harder. And I just sort of love her whole, maybe that makes me sound like an old grouch, like in terms of like, Oh, you have to like pay your dues. Cause I, I don't mean it that way. Well, no,
1: She's someone who was told they were amazing once and think they just stay amazing all the time. You have to continue to deliver. You were amazing for that,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: now you gotta be amazing for these things.
2: Yes. And like, she doesn't do any research when she like goes for this job interview, she can't get hired mm-hmm. anywhere. And like, she's like pissing away her one chance to get hired. And it just, it's wild to me that, I mean, I'm sure they, they're going on purpose, like entitled Gen Z character, you know, right. cause that, that really gets driven home. Like that she doesn't even like look up this woman. And also how does a TV comedy writer in LA know so little about stand-up? Like she knows nothing about standup and she goes out there and, and she thinks it's like awful to be going to like, like a world renowned uh, Las Vegas residency. And she's like, Oh, mm-hmm. I'm like this, like, I'm too good for this. And I'm like, that's like a dream job for a lot right. of people. Like, what are you doing? And so I, I think the set, like they, I think they, in a way make her very unlikable for like the first few episodes and i think that's purposeful but it's it's interesting because i think you know in season 2 maybe we'll we'll see her develop into a good writer like that she right. could you know, i think there's like potential that she could be a good writer but she's actually not that good <laughs> right Yeah now.
1: And and i like they have that daring writing of the show to leave it in such a cliffhanger that's going to be a mess to unravel for like we'll figure it out season two yes i like definitely. that a lot of people play it too safe but mm-hmm. this one like that's- the show succession guns it for that finale and they're like we'll figure it out when we get there and i yes, love that exactly love that.
2: and then the third thing that i watched recently was uh this new show called sex life on netflix okay with sarah Shahi, she's the main character and it's based on a book so like it's actually like a somewhat true story and so that's a wild show have you watched that
1: no i have not so i'm two for two for three on your
2: okay it's it's interesting it's i mean it's straight up pornography (laughs) it's like oh every episode is just like sarah Shahi's breasts are just oh. there. And there's also, if, if you Google the show, like most people will be saying there there's a lot of headlines that are like that moment in episode three, because that moment, in episode three, there's a full frontal on a man,
1: oh.
2: um, which, you know, you don't usually get to see a lot of sex. Uh, well, hence the, the show title sex life. But I, I actually think it has some interesting things to say about relationships and regrets and marriage and and reconciling like your past with your present and like you know adulthood decisions you've made and like you know things to that nature. I don't want to give away too much in case you want to watch it. But like there's like soapy outlandishness, but there's also some some really interesting things going on in the meantime too. Like I I sort of I do hope they get a season two because I'm curious to see where it goes. It definitely seems to me I kind of uh, I usually try to wait till I've finished watching something before I start right. reading all these articles and reviews and stuff. So I don't want it to like color what I'm, what Inform,
1: I'm informed, like how you're going to, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do the I same thing.
2: And so I only just started reading some stuff today and I, I kind of want to read more um, just cause I was, I, most of the stuff I read today, I was, I was just curious about the book that it was based on. Cause I'm like, Oh, maybe I want to read the book now. Yeah. I think a lot of the purpose was to explore female desire and how that plays out and, you know, how we don't really get to see it that much in terms on, on TV and in film where you like the woman who's thinking about stepping outside her marriage, you know, usually that's like straight to being a villain, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like, Oh no, this woman's a cheater. She's a terrible person. Like she's about to hurt someone, you know, even if you don't even know who the husband is in whatever you're watching. And instead this seems to take that trope of like a woman who's fantasizing about another man and tries to make you understand why versus, you know, immediately there's
1: countless male tales like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah.
2: Right. Cause like there is, there's, there's plenty of things where you're like, Oh, if you know, I forgive the guy because like, he really loves the woman that he's about to be with. And in this, it's more like, Oh, you know, I, I empathize with her because she's not sure she made the right choices in her life. But then, and, you know, and, and even when you get mad at her for certain things, you don't hate her. You're just like, ah, like communicate with your husband or like, you know, don't call this guy back. Or, you know, it's, it's more like, cause, but cause you like her and you like want her to be happy. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's a fine line to walk with a, a plot like that. So I think in that respect, if I feel that way, that means it was well done.
1: I'll have to check that out. It was not on my radar, but now it is. My what else is, I'm late, I'm a bit late to this party. And when this drops, it'll probably sound even later to this party, but mayor of Easttown, ah. I, finally, I finally got through my things to get to start that and finish it. And uh, it's really good. Uh, yeah. It's It's like it's that typical Twin Peaks formula of young girl murdered in a small town type, but mm-hmm. done really well. Like that's you know I don't care if you knock things off, be your own, and it's got its own flavor. Yeah, uh, and she's a awesome character. I really liked Mare. Um, I'd watch her do another mystery, but how much can you have in a small town? I don't wish yes. ill of that town to come to I- life again <laughs> for me to watch a their townsfolk their population go down but um and, it, and i'll tell you this so i i was watching i was like i'll watch this slow i'll watch slow. so i got you one night where i went five six and seven like i went right through the end and then the seventh one i was like all right well i'm just i was late at night it was probably like one after one in the morning i was like all right i'll just watch it till the they cap off that cliffhanger and i'll go and i'm like oh damn there's more to this i just i you know I like. 40 minutes to wind down and see everything going. I was like, all right. All right. <laughs> we'll, we'll just stick this out. And it it was really cool. I, I yeah, really into it. Great, cool cast.
2: Great cast. Yeah.
1: Yes. You have a big Guy Pierce fan. And, you know, Evan Peters has a nice, interesting role in there. Just a lot of, I like the, yeah, just the inner working drama. So, yeah, Mary Town, you've probably seen it. But,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and yeah, that's on HBO Max. I know. I know it's
2: also one of those things. Once you know, the ending kind of makes you want to go back and rewatch a little bit of the See beginning if it
1: fits together. Well, yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like you said, Kate Winslet was fantastic. I, I felt like it dealt really well with grief. Whenever a show really kind of nails like dialogue wise, or just even portraying what it's, what it's actually like, or what it feels like. I'm always so impressed because it's really hard to do to like actively show someone grieving without making it tiresome because that's one of the things in I think in real life is that people don't ever want to admit that it's like a day-to-day process because you don't want someone asking you every day how are you doing right you know, is okay like because no it's not but you're surviving and that survival looks different for different people and that's why so i you know, she, she sort of like avoids facing that the whole series. Mm-hmm. And then that widow asks her, you know, like, does it get better? And she's like, no, it, it doesn't. It's, it's terrible. Like every day. And then the final shot of her going up into the attic, I thought was so good. Like, yeah. cause like, I really didn't see that coming. Although I guess I probably should have, but you know, when she wakes up when she's sleeping next to her grandson and she wakes up, and, you know, her daughter's gone off to college and, you know, driven out west and uh, whatever it's happening. And, and I I kept thinking, like, how, you know, how does this end? She's just going to, like, go sit outside and, like, vape. <laughs> <about cable> and <laughs> and then she, you know, goes into the hallway and starts to take down the ladder. And I was like, oh, like, I felt like my heart stopped because I'm yeah. like, oh, my God. And it was in that moment that I'm like, oh, my God, please don't do a season two because this was perfect. Like, right. this is was- absolutely perfect and like you said too i wish no more ill will to that poor little town (laughs) like
1: yeah just like with with people who bitching about more star wars and i'm like you had to stir up their peace that's why they're not in good places right now you had to (laughs) star wars not star peace like You got to shake up that, you know, so your happy ending you had before is gone. Yeah. Now you have all that. You
2: I, and your- I had joked because, like, I liked all the characters on the show so much. I was, uh, like, I think we're on episode four or something. I'm like, oh, if this gets a second season, like, let's just, like, kind of segue into a nice little gentle uh, comedy, like a small town comedy, and just let them all be funny.
1: <laughs> Focus on the, uh, what, the 30th anniversary of the basketball team. Make it a little more lighthearted. <laughs> Things are different now than the last time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, that'll do for today. Danielle, I'm so very happy and honored to have you return to the show. It's been great. thank
2: you for having me.
1: Uh, Please let everybody know where they can keep up with you and your happenings uh, around the webs.
2: The best place is on Twitter at Sep, E-L-L-E-S-E-P. You can also go to my website, which is daniellesep.com and read all of the things that I've written and you know send me emails if you would so desire if you'd like to buy my book that is in its early stages of infancy development um it's called losing it and it's barnesandnoble.com amazon.com i believe you can also request it from your indie bookstores because it's just been out for a long time now so it's probably not floating around on the shelves lately but you can ask for it and yeah i think that's probably it for now
1: excellent and i'm on twitter and instagram at brandon 4 kuhd written work at YSOBlue.com. there's more from the brandon peters show this week but until then always remember to keep the positivity in your online film chatter
0: thank you for listening the brandon peters show is a creative zombie studios production produced by brad shoemaker and brandon peters written and edited by brandon peters police always said, freeze. Well, I am the police. And I say, don't move, Snow White. You move, you're dead. And I say,
2: I'm dead.